Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast where we prod the sheep and beat the wolf. This is episode 93, Defeating Defeatism, part two. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Right now, we're in a series called A Practical Postmillennialism, where we're talking about the end times doctrine called postmillennialism. Now, we're going to define that term in the future, and we're going to see a biblical case for why this doctrine is the best doctrine. But in these early episodes, we really need to look at the other eschatological views. We need to understand how they're not only deficient, but they actually contribute to a defeatist mindset that has hampered the church in the modern world and has caused her to retreat from culture, expecting an imminent return of Christ who will come and rescue her from her bruised and beaten status. That inglorious view has done so much to harm the bride of Christ in the modern world and to immobilize her for mission. So before we get started and before we get really deep into the biblical view of the end times and the and the pleasant optimism that postmillennialism affords, well, we have to wade through the dirty waters of eschatological defeatism. We have to identify it and we have to know what it is so that we can flush it back down the tubes where it belongs. Now, if you remember in episode one, which was called Defeating Defeatism Part One, We tackled the most egregious of these end times perspectives, a relative newcomer in the market of eschatological views, which is called dispensationalism. There, it was shown how dispensationalism is a theological system of fragmentation, slicing up the Bible into these seven arbitrary and totally made up epics, which have little or nothing to do with each other or the Bible. It's like ripping a chapter out of a out of seven different books and then gluing them together and hoping that you can put together a cohesive story. Well, dispensationalism produces only incoherence and confusion and as a viewpoint and inspires no one to do anything. This does not mean that all dispensationalists are lazy couch potatoes who are merely eking their way through life. Not at all. But what it does mean that whenever a dispensationalist does any kingdom work, evangelizing, making disciples, building and planting churches, any of that, they're not operating under their worldview. They're borrowing from ours. If the sky is always falling, then there's no time to build, which means whenever a premillennialist will do anything, especially dispensationalism, will do anything, building, uh, working, whatever, they're betraying their own worldview. Their worldview doesn't substantiate it because it only substantiates panic and doom. Now, furthermore, by destroying the unity of Scripture and by assigning the church to this sort of arbitrary era that is doomed to fail and by punting all of the promises of Jesus's kingdom to some indeterminate epoch in the future that we're never going to see, proponents of this view naturally withdraw from culture in the here and now. Because frankly, what's the point? We're never going to win. We're only going to lose. We lose down here. Our only hope is to be slingshotted out of here on an eschatological, uh, unbiblical rapture. The consequences of that kind of view are devastating. 
because while proponents remove themselves from culture, society becomes supremely more and more decayed. And it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for the prophecy pundits. Instead of seeing the clear and obvious truth that society decays, society becomes worse when the Christian church fails to engage it, when we remove ourselves as salt and light as Jesus commanded, well, dispensationalists see that and they say, look, at the world has continued to get worse, therefore we need to hunker down. It continues to worsen because they continue to retreat further and further away. And as they retreat further and further away, their fever to escape the mess that they've created ever increases. It's kind of like a fussy child who uses meltdowns in order to manipulate their mother, refusing to clean his room because it's grown so bad that he doesn't even know where to start. And it has grown from bad to worse. And he knows that if he just waits it out, his mom will eventually step in. She may fuss about it, but she'll step in and she'll perform the rescue mission. Well, dispensationalists treat Christ much the same way, frantically adopting increasing levels of hypomania over society and the future and their charts and their tinfoil hats, much like the prophets of Baal cutting themselves to manipulate the gods. Well, dispensationalists do the same thing, attempting to get Christ to come down and take them out of here. This winning and psychotic viewpoint has produced a landscape of losers, and it's high time for us to discard it. Now, in episode two, I invited renowned Bible scholar and teacher Gary DeMar onto the podcast in order to help us to understand how this view is not biblical and how it doesn't work for a variety of reasons. And if you remember, for over an hour, Dr. DeMar took us one passage at a time through the New Testament, proving how this rigid commitment to futurism does not account for what we see in the text. He showed us how the wars and rumors of wars, the famines, the earthquakes, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, and all of the other signs that show up there in Matthew 24 are not signs of a future tribulation period under a European antichrist, but instead they're actual historical events that happen in space and time in the first century in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And as I said, Gary DeMar took us one by one through these passages for over an hour, completely and totally dismantling the dispensational view. And I highly recommend that you go and check out that episode, which is on our YouTube page. It's on Spotify, Apple, wherever podcasters sold or distributed or whatever. And this is also a good time to say, if you're not subscribed, subscribe. We'd love to have you. Now, today... We're going to look at a more reasonable view, the reasonable older sister of dispensationalism, the sister who's got her head on a little bit more securely, which is called historic premillennialism. Now, by premillennialism, I just mean that this is a view in relationship to the millennium, that Jesus is going to return pre, which means before he institutes his millennial reign. Unlike amillennialism and postmillennialism, which see Jesus currently, right now, reigning on his throne in heaven, that we are in his reign, well, historic premillennialism sees that we're waiting for that. We're waiting for Christ's future and physical reign on earth that hasn't happened yet, which, by the way, is going to last for a literal thousand calendar years, according to that view. Now, for us to properly examine this view and to show how it's deficient, we're going to need to move pretty quickly. 
We're going to have to paint with broad strokes. And I'm not going to be able to cover everything in, in, in not even close to an exhaustive way. This episode is probably going to be over an hour as it is, so I need to move quickly. But my goal is to show how this view historically came to be, how it's not biblical, and how it actually produces anti-biblical attitudes in Jesus' church. It undermines our mission, and it has caused us and led to the mess that we're currently in in this country. That's right. I believe that premillennialism, both historic premillennialism and its redheaded dispensational heifer, is one of the chief reasons that society is murdering a million babies, why men are trying to become women, and why political elites are embracing Marxism and running our country into moral chaos, and so much more. And you may be asking yourself, how can I make such a bold claim that dispensationalism is, or premillennialism is, one of the chief problems in our world? Well, Because when a view so successfully undermines the church's mission, causing her to retreat, causing her to to slump down in defeat and to stop making disciples and to stop advancing and to stop pushing back the gates of hell and to cease holding culture accountable, well, should we be surprised when the pagans run into all kinds of rank and disgusting error? If premillennialism causes the church to be impotent and the church causes, and the church's removal from the world causes the world to become rotten, well, then dispensationalism is is to blame or premillennialism is to blame. Let me give you an example. If you leave raw hamburger meat out on the counter, it putrefies. And that is what meat does when it's not preserved in a refrigerator. Well, in the same way, premillennialism left the kitchen, the society, to go hide in the eschatological basement waiting for her rapture, which hasn't come. And sadly, while the church has been waiting for a, for 50 years at the old rapture bus stop, hands in pocket doing little else, the meat of American culture has turned a slimy, disgusting green, and the moral maggots that infiltrated Hollywood and Washington have crept in and totally infested this country. Vivid, but true. Now, my hope in this series is that some small way, in some small way, we can be a part of changing that. That we can be a part of seeing a more optimistic view of Christ, of his kingdom, and his mission. So with that, let us begin our time today talking about the history of historic premillennialism, then we'll talk about how it's unbiblical, then we'll talk about how it produces unbiblical emotions, then we'll close. Let's begin. The History of Premillennialism, Part 1, The Ancient View. Now, among the end times positions, there are two schools of thought that go all the way back to the ancient and apostolic church. After the canon of scripture was closed and all of the apostles died, and as the early church began to spread in the hostile Roman world, well, there began to be prominent and influential Christian thinkers who weighed in on a variety of theological subjects to help the church become robust in her thinking. Well, unfortunately for us, eschatology was one of those doctrines that took significantly more time to systematize than the others. It it probably is true in your life. If you want to study doctrine, maybe you'll start with the knowledge of God and salvation. Those things are are good. And and actually, you should study those things before you get to eschatology. Doesn't mean eschatology isn't important, but the early church made the right decision in prioritizing the systematization of other doctrines first, which means that... In the first two centuries of the church, we don't really have a lot of statements 
about eschatology. We have some scant points, some underdeveloped postulations of what the earliest Christians living in the first two centuries believed about the end times. But of our information, there are two basic views that sort of rise to the fore. The first view set forth prominently by Augustine of Hippo is that when Christ ascended into heaven, he sat down on his throne to reign. Proponents of this view attest that he was not waiting for a future period of time where he's going to assume a millennial reign of a thousand literal years. He's reigning now, which made the thousand years described in the book of Revelation chapter 20, a non-literal number. To be clear, this group believed Jesus was reigning from the very moment that he ascended into heaven and sat down on the throne of God, which is what kings do. When you sit down as a king on your throne, you're reigning. And he would continue that reign until his kingdom had come in full, the church, until he had finished building all of it. Now, that's the first view, and that's the view that I hold. The other view represented in the ancient church is that Jesus would return at some point in the future. Maybe he's reigning in heaven and all of that, but he's not reigning on earth and he won't reign on earth physically until the end when he returns and he sets up his kingdom for a thousand literal years. This end time view shows up in fragmentary form very early in the writings of church fathers such as Papias or Justin Martyr and Tertullian, but it's laid out most fully by a man named Irenaeus of Lyons in his work called Against Heresies, which goes all the way back to 180 AD, which means that it is quite old. That is a a benefit actually to the historic premillennial view is that it goes back so far into church history. Does it make it right? but it does mean that it's an old view, which is good. It's not like dispensationalism, which popped up out of nowhere in the 19th century. Now, this view, bolstered by a commitment to a literalistic hermeneutic of scripture, tried to explain Old Testament prophecies of worldwide peace and prosperity and global justice as future events, as a physical period on earth at a particular time when Messiah would commence his reign upon his return meaning that the world is going to experience total peace. His kingdom is going to be unopposed. There's going to be shalom all over the world. There's going to be uh, there's going to be vineyards that are planted, and you're going to tie your donkey up to the vine because, you know, if the donkey eats the vine, who cares? You have so many. That, that That's the sort of Old Testament prophecies that, that are talked about when it comes to the reign of Messiah, that it's going to be in a world filled with peace and prosperity and justice and goodness, and it's going to be amazing. Now, this is, in fact, precisely where postmillennialism and premillennialism agree. They both see these Old Testament prophecies as coming physically to the earth under the reign of Christ. Postmillennialists, however, understand these coming gradually and increasingly upon the earth through the ministry of the church who is led by the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent by the will of the Father, that the church is going to spread Jesus' reign victoriously victoriously across the earth, and that this sort of kingdom that is described in the Old Testament is going to come in over time and gradually. Now, the premillennialist, however, on the other hand, see the current age that we are living in as a collapsing doomed epic that's going to fall down in fantastic defeat. The church itself is going to be completely and totally unsuccessful in her task to disciple the nations, which is going to prompt Jesus to return to a world that is filled with evil to put it all away. 
and to be crowned as its new king who's going to reign bodily on earth for a thousand years. And yet, in the premillennial view, near the end of Jesus's reign, there's going to be a group of people who rebel against him, showing that that even in perfection, in the reign that that, that premillennialists described as Jesus's his triumphing moment, he doesn't even keep all of his people and some of them rebel, which is just crazy to me. Now, premillennialists understand the reign of Christ as a future event. Postmillennialists understand the reign of Christ is happening now. That is how those two views go back all the way to the ancient world, and they're both substantiated. Part two, the Middle Ages. Now, as the ancient church began to gain ground in the Roman world, premillennial thought also began to wane, and it sort of fell off the radar for more than a thousand years. With later apostolic fathers coming around in the 3rd and 4th century, such as Origen, who promoted his allegorical view, which just means that he thought the millennium was not a literal time period, and Augustine of Hippo's towering theological influence, as well as Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire during the time of Constantine, well, premillennialism faded from the majority opinion to the minority report. It's hard to believe such a defeatist opinion when everything around you is becoming Christian. And that's exactly what happened. Well, Augustine in particular was influential in this transition. He argued that the millennium described in Revelation 20 was not a literal number of years. In the same way that God does not own the cattle just on a literal thousand hills, but he owns all the cattle on all the hills. Instead, according to Augustine, the 1,000 years represented the ongoing reign of Christ over his church. It's his full reign. This became the prominent view in the early Roman Catholic Church, and it remained the majority position in Christendom all the way until the 16th century and really all the way until the late 18th century when a few radical offshoots of the Reformation gravitated back to premillennial thinking. Now, for context, the view that Christ has been reigning victoriously over his church and not waiting for a future return uh, for that reign to ensue, that view has been the dominant position of the church throughout the entire church history, especially between the years 1400 and 1600 AD. It has been the monolithic, most represented position. So if you want to say, what is the view that has been represented by most Christians at most time periods all throughout church history, it's either amillennialism or postmillennialism, which we'll get into the distinctions of those next week. Part three, the modern era. During the Protestant Reformation, Augustine's eschatological allegoricalism, again, the thousand years aren't literal, was a decisive influence upon the magisterial reformers. This meant that the overwhelming majority position on the end times events that are described in Revelation was that Christ was currently reigning over his church not awaiting a physical reign on earth at some point in the distant future. Now, you had some of the reformers who said that the Pope was the Antichrist and all of that. That's fine. We'll get into that maybe at some point. But at the same time, everyone believed that Jesus was reigning now, except a few radicalized offshoots of the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, such as the Mennonites and the Anabaptist. Those departed from the allegorical view of the millennium, and they began constructing all kinds of different unique various end times positions. So they began making new views. Some of those groups began returning to the old historic premillennial thinking, reinvigorating it sort of in seed form that would last for a couple hundred years until the Plymouth Brethren would pick that up in the 19th century. If you remember from last week, the Plymouth Brethren is where we get John Nelson Darby. 
who became the father of dispensational premillennialism, and he's responsible for taking the fun out of the world and for bringing premillennialism back into the forefront of Christian eschatological thinking. Now, before the Reformation, premillennialism was almost entirely unattested for more than a thousand years of church history. After the Reformation, it had a slight uptick in some radical reformers, and then it picked up as the predominant view of church history through a man named John Nelson Darby, who brought it to the forefront of American evangelical thinking. Now, this is no credit to premillennialism as a position. It's no credit to its biblical exegesis, in fact, but it is what happened in history, except among the Reformed churches. You see, dispensationalism was always a flawed view um, and never really fully adapted by Reformation churches, churches that held tightly to the theology of the Reformation and adopted its confessions and almost entirely avoided this sort of repugnant stench on the eschatological world. And since it so clearly deviated from covenant theology and a proper hermeneutic from for understanding scripture, most of the Reformed churches completely avoided it like the plague. This was until George Eldon Ladd, who was a 20th century theologian, revived historic premillennialism from the ashes of history, giving some Reformed thinkers a possible third option for eschatological thinking, especially among strains of evangelicals and Baptists. Unlike Darby, who divided the Bible into arbitrary dispensations, Ladd rightly saw that the Bible is one unified redemptive story with Christ at the center of it, seeking to reintegrate that view into his theological work. This included reintegrating Israel and the church, who dispensationalism divided, and Ladd saw as distinct people yet under the same Lord, and he also rejected the rapture-driven escapism of dispensationalism, adopting instead a more moderate view where the church would suffer along with the world in a view called post-tribulational rapture, where we would suffer right alongside the pagans in Antichrist seven-year reign of terror, that is, before Jesus returns and calls us home. Ladd also, you know, making things more moderate, he correctly identified that the pietism and the purely allegorical interpretation among some amillennials, typically among the radical two kingdoms types, did not do justice justice to the prophetic promises that are given in the Gospels and in the Old Testament, which describe these events as future realities that are going to come to pass on a physical earth and not just spiritually in heaven. You see, according to him, the radical amillennial types relocated everything to heaven. Jesus is reigning, and it's a spiritual kingdom with all the benefits in heaven. Ladd says no, and he's right in this, that the promises in the Bible actually have a physical impact on this earth. He answers the question wrongly with premillennialism. We'll talk about how you can answer it rightly with postmillennialism. But the point is, is that the reign of Christ will have an impact on the world that we are living in. And Ladd rightly saw that. Now, all these modifications by Ladd and others were improvements, and they certainly reinvigorated a kind of return to a true historic premillennialism that had been known among the apostolic fathers and had been dormant for about fifteen to 1,600 years. Yet, while what Ladd did was an improvement, the entire system was still built upon an entirely flawed premise, a plank in the eye called futurism. 
We are all products of the world in which we were born. Modern premillennialism is no different. It was born into a world of German higher critical thinking, the rise of secularism and theological liberalism, and a gamut of academic disciplines that were seeking to undermine the sanctity and the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. Things like philosophy and psychology. All of these viewpoints were beginning to gain steam at the exact same time that modern premillennialism was taking root. And you would imagine that modern premillennialism in its infant stages would need to answer the questions that that the secular, liberal, higher critical scholars are leveling. And that's exactly what happened. Now, these scholars attacked the scriptures ferociously, and there's few places in the Bible where these attacks were leveled more ardently than on the person and work of Jesus Christ. From accusations that he never existed, that he was a failed messianic upstart among many, or that he was a false prophet who did not come back in the time frame that he had given, secularists were continually attacking the credibility of Jesus more ferociously than piranhas on a ham bone. And this is not a foolish strategy if you're a secularist. If you can invalidate the author and the perfecter of the Christian faith, and if you can remove the cornerstone from the structure, well, then you can dismantle the entire Christian building. Of all the places, however, that critical scholars aimed the barrel of their guns most pointedly, it was in Jesus's prediction contained in the Olivet Discourse. If they could show that Jesus was a false prophet there, that what he had predicted to happen did not come true in the way that he described it, then they could dismiss Jesus as one of the legion of gods that were invented by mortal men that were relegated to the museum shelves. In doing that, they could live however they wanted without being held accountable to a living absolute sovereign. Now, according to these scholars, the only possible way to understand Jesus's words in the Olivet Discourse was Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, is to see him predicting his immediate return. Jesus, according to them, made it abundantly clear when he thought he was going to come back to the world, and that was going to happen in a single generation from the time of his death. If you remember, a generation is 40 years. So secular scholars accused Jesus of believing that he's going to return within 40 years, and they say it did not happen. Therefore, Jesus is a false prophet. And because premillennialism was starting to gain its footing at the same time these accusations were being leveled, they had to come up with an answer to this question, and unfortunately, they got it wrong. Maybe they had good motives. Maybe they tried hard. Maybe they swung and missed, but they missed it nonetheless. Now, I want you to remember the context so that I can prove this to you. Jesus is not talking about the future in Matthew 24. He is doing what the secular scholars accuse him of. He's saying, I'm going to return within 40 years. So what's the context of Matthew 24? We go back to Matthew 21, where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and they give him only leaves. They were a city that was supposed to bear fruit for God and they, they didn't have any. So they gave him leaves instead. This is important because near the end of Matthew 21, or at least near the middle of it, Jesus curses a fig tree, which offered him only leaves and no fruit. These, these events happen nearly in the same day. So the fig tree represents Jerusalem. In the same way that they gave him leaves and no fruit, this fig tree gave him leaves and no fruit, and Jesus cursed it. And he cursed it and said it would be ripped up and thrown into the fire, just like the city of Jerusalem would happen in AD 70. Now, that fig tree became sort of typological picture of what was going to happen to Jerusalem, Matthew 21, 18 through 22. 
After that, he goes into the city. He walks into the city and he tells three successive parables about how the kingdom of God was going to be taken away from the apostate Jewish leadership and it was going to be given to a people who bear the fruit. These people weren't going to offer him just leaves and stubble and hay. They were going to give him fruit and it's going to be his church that's going to do that, not the Jewish religious leaders. There's those parables you can find Matthew 21, 28 through chapter 22, 14. It talks about a landowner. It talks about a vineyard owner. It talks about a father with two sons. It talks about a man who threw a wedding feast. The point of all of those parables is that Jesus is going to take that kingdom away from the Pharisees and give it to a people who will produce God's fruit. And it says in the text that the Pharisees understood that he was leveling these judgments against them. So that's the context. Matthew 23 furthers that context when Jesus, after he gives these parables of judgment, then he pronounces seven covenantal woes upon the city. He tells them that all of the wrath that God has been storing up since the beginning of the world, since Cain killed Abel, it's going to be poured out on that generation of false shepherds. No one at the time was standing around looking at Jesus saying, I bet he's talking about the end of the world. They didn't. He said, it's going to fall on you. Your city is going to be left in flames, Matthew 22, 7. Your temple, your house is going to be left to you desolate. That's Matthew 23. Everyone understood what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the downfall of that city. And it was so clear that the disciples became freaked out and paranoid, so much so that they asked him what he was talking about. And Jesus made himself even more clear by telling his disciples that not even one stone from that flawed fruitless temple was going to be left upon another, Matthew 24, 1 through 2. Instead, wars and rumors of wars were going to occur. False prophets were going to arise. Famines and earthquakes, heightened persecutions, tribulations, and abomination that caused desolation were all going to come against this people and against this temple, leaving it desolate, culminating in the dazzling return of Jesus Christ within a single generation, Matthew 24, 29 through 41. Now, since liberal scholars can clearly read from the text that Jesus intended to come back in judgment against that generation of sinful Jews within 40 years, they see that, well, Jesus didn't bodily come back, therefore, he's not a a real prophet. He's a false prophet. And they level that blasphemous charge against Jesus, saying that he's not God, but he's merely a man. Well, in doing that, the premillennialist had to have an answer, and it was during this period when the pagan men were running roughshod over the text, believing that they had somehow invalidated the Christian faith by dethroning the Christian Christ. Well, premillennialism was born, and it was born to give an answer, and out of the best intentions, as we said before, it gave the wrong answer. It attempted to craft an eschatological position that rescued Jesus from the attacks of the liberal scholars, but it answered it wrongly. If you want to know more about this event, you can read R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus. I think it's chapter one or chapter two. He goes into detail about this, and it's fascinating, and he's right. Now, to do this, to pull this off, premillennialism needed to reinterpret everything that Jesus was saying in these passages. They need to completely destroy the context that Jesus was operating under. And somehow, instead of seeing the Olivet Discourse as happening in the lifetime of the people that Jesus gave it to, they're going to have to find some way to tie it 
into the future, which which would invalidate the accusations that are being pummeled against Jesus by these scholars. They'd have to say, no, 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 no. These things don't happen in Jesus's lifetime. He's not a false prophet. No, these things happen in the future. And secular scholars did not fall for it. They say, you can't do that to the text. That's not what it says. But premillennialism did it anyway. Instead of attempting to show how these events really happened within the time frame that Jesus said, premillennialists argued that most of church history, most scholars, even the people standing right in front of Jesus listening to him speak, misunderstood what Jesus was actually saying and doing. And instead, these predictions occur sometime in the remote future, not within a single generation of Jesus's listeners. Now, while the people who heard him say these things were still living, premillennialists began to argue that they were wrong and the, the events were never intended to happen in the past. They were only ever intended to happen in the future. In fact, they still haven't happened today and they're not going to happen until sometime in the future when no man knows the day or the hour and you've heard the line. Now, this means that when the disciples asked Jesus what would be the sign of the downfall of the city and what would be the sign of the downfall of this era and of the Jewish temple, well, in Matthew 24, 3, they asked him these questions. In order to, to have the premillennial view, you would have to believe that Jesus ignored his followers' questions and instead decided to talk about the things that were not going to happen for another 2,000 plus years and would have zero relevance to their life and their circumstances. It would be like Jesus saying, the city is under judgment. The temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. And the disciples say, when's it going to happen? Jesus says, I don't know, but let me tell you about what's going to happen 2,000 years from now, because that's really fascinating. It has absolutely nothing to do with your life. That would have us believe that all of the signs that Jesus gave were for a future generation and not for the people who were standing right in front of him. They were instead a roadmap on how to read the passage and how to walk through the great tribulation in the modern world. If that sounds like a thoroughly crazy and utterly insane way to interpret the text, then you're right. Congratulations. You're still sane. Not only would that overlook the disciples, their emotions, their feelings, their questions, and the entire context, it would also, in it would ignore all of the evidence that there is to present that these are actual events that happen. And we could present that to liberal theologians proving that Jesus' prophecy came true. And if you want, on my blog and on this podcast, I've got like 10 to 20 episodes on Matthew 24, where I prove that all of these things happened. There really were wars and rumors of wars happening in the first century. There were, and, and that was a much more critical sign back then than it even is today because they were living under the Pax Romana, which meant that there were no wars. We don't live during that time. We live in a time where there's constant wars. Just under Joe Biden's failed presidency, we've had two, maybe possibly three wars that have been rumored to start, and now we see that they have. The Pax Romana, that was not the case. So wars and rumors force was a sign that, made, that meant a lot of sense to them. There was an astonishing number of earthquakes between the year AD 70 or AD 30 and AD 70. If you look it up in the history, you'll see that. There were even pagans who were saying that these earthquakes are a sign of judgment. You'll remember when Jesus rose from the dead, earthquake. Uh, when he died, earthquake. There were earthquakes happening all the time. And that was a signal to Jesus' disciples that these things were happening now. 
There was an empire-wide famine that one of the historians tell us about that that covered the entire Roman world. People were afraid that they were going to lose everything. There were false prophets. Acts chapter 5 tells us about two of them. There was an uptick in persecution by the Jews. The whole book of Acts is about that. One by one, all of the signs that Jesus gave to us in that chapter can be shown to have already happened, which gloriously fulfills everything Jesus said. That's even true of the second coming when you understand what Jesus is talking about. He's not promising to come at the end of human history, surfboarding on the clouds, coming down from heaven, and then, you know, a sword literally coming out of his mouth like his tongue has now turned into a spear. No, he is talking in Old Testament ways. He's not talking about rapturing a church out of here, as the premillennialists suggest. He's promising a judgment coming against Jerusalem that was going to happen just like in the days of Noah. You see, in the Old Testament, judgment comings happened when God raised up armies to destroy his wayward people. It happened when he raised up uh, Syria to destroy Israel. It happened when he raised up Babylon to destroy Israel. Jerusalem and Judea. This is just ways that God does this. And the judgment that he describes in Matthew 24 is not a righteous, it's not a rapture of the righteous, but it's a rapture. It's a sweeping away of the wicked, just like in the days of Noah. Look at what it says in verse 37 and beyond. For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Jesus is not arguing for an end of human history coming. He is he's not arguing for a rapture of all the righteous Christians on earth. He's arguing for a cataclysmic judgment on the wicked that looks like and smells like the judgment that God poured out on the generation that was alive during the preaching of Noah. And just like Noah preached to them to repent and they did not listen, but they hardened their heart in the same way the Jews hardened their heart to the preaching of Christ and his disciples. And as a result, all of the wicked were swept away in that original devastating flood. And in the same way, Jerusalem's leaders were going to be killed by God's son by sending the Roman armies because they refused to repent and turn to him. They were going to be swept away by the torrent of God's awesome fury. And that happened when the floodwaters of the Roman legions descended upon the city, drowning the rebels in their own blood, letting their dead bodies decompose in the heat of the noontime day. That's Matthew 24, 28, when the vultures even surrounded the city. And those bodies sat there and decomposed until the Romans set the city on fire and carried away all of its wealth in their boats. Do you see the Noahic themes there? Jesus is not talking about a future rapture. He's talking about a coming in judgment against Jerusalem. And he's using the same kind of language that he used in the prophets when he raised up nations in judgment against other nations. For instance, when God decided to judge Nineveh, he rode on the clouds in judgment against them. That's Nahum 1.3. When God decides to destroy Babylon, the sun went dark and the moon didn't give its light. Isaiah 13.10. The moon also didn't give its light in the downfall of Egypt. That's Ezekiel 32.7. The heavens and the earth quaked and shaked in the prophecy of Joel, Joel 2.10, which, by the way, is describing the coming catastrophe on Jerusalem. 
When you look at Joel 2, it says that the Pentecost is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come down upon believers and they're going to prophesy in those days. And then Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. That's exactly what happened. And Jesus quotes from that passage in Matthew 24. Those apocalyptic images that Jesus is using is not talking about a future when every eye on earth will see him surfboarding on the clouds. That's not what he's saying. He's using Old Testament images to describe a a New Testament reality, which is Jerusalem is going to come under the curse of God. Matthew 23 is all about that. Seven covenantal curses are pronounced here in Matthew 24. He gives apocalyptic imagery, and that's going to happen in their lifetime. They're going to soon be destroyed within a 40-year window. And guess what? It happened. Far from these passages invalidating the prophecy of Christ or undermining his divinity, they actually overwhelmingly substantiate it and make this the single greatest fulfillment of prophecy that has ever been given, bar none. And this proves the point. In order to rescue biblical passages from a perceived supposed societal skepticism, premillennialism has removed them from their church age context and punted them deep into the post-rapture world. Instead of doing the hard work of exegesis to see what the original author intended to communicate to the original audience, Many premillennialists assume an auto-futurism, an automatic future fulfillment that applies to every text with little to no exegetical warrant for doing so. For instance, when Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, the premillennialists will say, that's about Jesus Christ, and they would be right when they do so. But in the same verse, when it says that the kingdom that his kingdom is going to spread and the increase of his government and of his peace is going to know no end. Well, you ask them when that's going to happen and they say, well, that's not going to happen until the millennial kingdom. And then the question you have to ask them is why? How in the world do you think that that is what Isaiah meant? Isaiah said that the king is going to be born and he's going to begin a kingdom and there is no break in the text. It's not that he's going to be born and then go take a 2000 year siesta and then start his kingdom, that's ludicrous. That's not what he's talking about. Here's another example in Daniel chapter seven. You'll remember Daniel foresees the coming of the son of man. And he comes up with the clouds of heaven in Daniel chapter seven. Well, premillennialists assume that this is speaking about the second coming of Christ when he comes down and when he makes war with the antichrist and abolishes all the rebellion that there is on earth and inaugurates his thousand year kingdom. Well, this is just absolutely and clearly not what Daniel is speaking about. And this is really kind of hard to take serious if you understand the context. Daniel says that the son of man goes up to the ancient of days. He does not come down. He ascends. He does not descend. Further, Jesus himself says that he is the son of man that Daniel's talking about, that he is the one who's going to ascend up to the ancient of days on the clouds and that it's the wicked high priest Caiaphas, who's actually going to witness it, Matthew 26, 24. So for Caiaphas to be an eyewitness of Daniel 7 coming to fulfillment, that would mean it would have to happen in Caiaphas's lifetime. It can't be an event that happens in our distant future. It happened just 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead, meaning that this passage from Daniel has already been fulfilled by the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
And since Daniel says that this is when the son of man comes into his kingdom and receives his glory and starts stepping into the beginning of his worldwide expansion of his dominion, well, we should not mark that as a future millennial kingdom, but we should see that kingdom as happening now because it already occurred at the ascension of Christ. We are currently living in it. Now, I can give you plenty more examples, but it's clear to me that premillennialism has adopted a hermeneutic of auto-futurism, or by that I mean automatically applying a futuristic interpretation to text that it does not apply. That's not to say that there aren't passages in the Bible that are future. There absolutely are, but we do not apply an auto-futuristic hermeneutic. We look at the text, we understand what it meant it's in, a, in its historical context, and if the original author intended to communicate a future outcome to the original audience, we receive that. But if not, instead of asking, what does this text mean to the to me, we actually go back and ask the right question and say, what does it mean to the original audience? That sort of failed hermeneutic that is applied liberally in the premillennial movement has fueled endless speculation, newspaper exegesis, and has settled into the church like the whooping cough and has strangled Jesus's church of its vigor and its life. How premillennialism produces putrid pessimism. While offering a better view of eschatology than dispensationalism, that's for sure, the doctrine of premillennialism will inadvertently cast a shadow over Christian life and over mission. As understood in the historic premillennial framework, this anticipation for a post-rapture coming of Jesus doesn't actually contribute hope. It contributes to a sense of defeatism among believers. It produces a culture of negativity that looks to the end of the world instead of faithfulness to Christ. And it will cause a generation of churchgoers to wait passively with their hands in their pocket, waiting on a rapture that just isn't coming. Instead of actively engaging in churches or working to see all of Christ permeate their home or building the kingdom in our generation or trusting God with his promises, they wait without hope. And what follows as we come to a close of today's episode, I want to briefly describe why premillennialism produces such rank pessimism. And I'm going to give six reasons for that. Reason number one, a defeatist attitude. A key concern in premillennial thinking is a defeatist attitude, which is far from a biblical virtue. Instead of adopting real biblical things like hope or courage or long-suffering or joy, this outlet leads to sinful attitudes that must be repented of, sinful motivations that must be avoided. For instance, Romans 8.37 says, in all these things, that means in everything you and I go through in the age of the church that we're living in now and not a future age that is to come, in all these things, we are to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, this verse doesn't emphasize defeat. It emphasizes victory through faith. It doesn't emphasize ongoing failure. It says that, and it doesn't emphasize an ever-worsening world that's going to be bankrupt until Christ returns. No, believers are to think about their efforts in society as, as not hopelessly futile, but something that actually is making a difference. 
This premillennial mindset does not produce godly men and women and children. It certainly doesn't produce vigor or long-suffering or a can-do attitude that should be present among Jesus' servants. Instead, it leads to pessimism and passivity and an acceptance of the world's decline. It's a sort of just, you know, well, we know the world's declining, so what can we do about it? It's that kind of attitude. It's merely believing that the world is just a sinking ship so what does it matter which is i guess good news if you if you're hoping for the world to just totally destroy itself before the lord's imminent return this anti-christian mentality undercuts the hope of the christian gospel the christian imperative to disciple the nations and to spread the lord's gospel to the ends of the earth so it must be rejected reason number two the psychology of defeatism. Now, similarly, premillennialism paints a picture of a world spiraling inevitably out of control, which appeals to the carnality of men and women who are living in this society. Let me let me say it to you like this. Our society is known for negativity. Instead of feel-good stories and positive news events or or even entertainment that is focused on building things, like like, you know, winning a championship or things like those movies have sort of gone away today we live in a world where news organizations are pumping defeat and death and disaster into our homes on a minute by minute basis if you'll notice so many of our movies that are coming out are not about triumphant things they're not about even feel-good things they're about the world's coming to an explosive end whether it's an asteroid that's killing everyone or it's ai that's taking over everything or it's a cyber attack on our grid that causes us to leave the world behind this society is addicted to digital death and destruction that has made ubiquitous through the ever-growing web called the internet have you ever wondered why it's called web and internet predators are what catch things in nets and webs do not let yourself be caught in the negativity that is being pumped into your home through your device it's that expectation that we've all lived under in this society and sadly premillennialism appeals to it and works well in that kind of environment it appeals to the kind of carnality that is inside fallen man and ignorant christians it appeals to the people who don't know their bible and who don't know that the virtues of the christian faith and the fruits of the spirit that he brings into your life is not premillennial pessimism but hope and joy and love and grace and peace Premillennialism presents a constant barrage of future chaos and moral decay, leading Christians into an addiction to abject despair, which makes premillennialism the CNN or the MSNBC of Christianity. It's fake news all the time, constantly delivered. And for that reason, we have to reject it. Reason number three, the church's role in an interim age. Premillennialism also casts this current age that you and I are living in as entirely unimportant, contradicting the biblical call to active stewardship of the world, or even the fact that God through the second Adam is going to redeem the world. That's Romans 8. But for a moment, let's look at Genesis 1, which is the stewardship of the world, the cultural mandate. Genesis 1.28 tells us to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. Well, instead of taking dominion and being fruitful and multiplying families and subduing things to the glory of God, premillennialism produces a piss-poor mindset that expects the church of Jesus Christ to lose. No matter what we do, we're just going to crash and burn anyway, so what's the point? 
That sort of pep talk would be a horrible locker room speech by any coach that ever delivered it. Can you imagine a head coach coming into the locker room at halftime and saying, well, boys, I don't want you to be deceived right now. We can't win out there. They're better than us and they're going to win. But don't worry, at the end of the game, everything will work itself out. I mean, can you imagine what the team would feel like under that sort of message? I mean, what do you think that team is going to do or act like if they believe that coach's message? They're going to slack off, lazily go through the motions in the playbook, and they're going to get their rear ends handed to them in fantastic fashion. Then they're going to walk away saying, yeah, you know, the coach was right. He told us that we were going to lose, and we did. This is precisely the kind of outcome premillennialism is producing, an age of people who expect to lose. And praise God that history tells a different story than that, which means God is not beholden to our sinful, pessimistic logic. He will have the victory, which is why we must get rid of these eschatologies of defeat. Reason four, a passive church waiting for redemption. Now, premillennialism, by placing the inauguration of Christ's kingdom in the indeterminate future encourages the church to keep circling the runway in a perpetual holding pattern with no plan ever to land. This has led to all kinds of ecclesial passivity in the church, where the mission is not something that we do today, but rather the mission is that we all hunker down together and wait for an escape. As mentioned above, that's like a child waiting for the parent to clean the room for them instead of getting up and cleaning it themselves. Jesus did not commission us to that sort of impetulant posture. He called us to work. Reason number five, missionary work in the shadow of the millennium. One of the most crucial and critical teachings that Jesus gave to his church is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. That is the commitment for us to do missions all across the world, to spread the gospel to all the nations, to make the nations disciples of Christ. This directive does not convey an immediate or imminent eschaton, but it emphasizes a long-term, ongoing, sustained effort that is not going to be finished very quickly. The task of discipling pagan nations is it implies both time and rigorous work. However, under the shadow of premillennial Mirkwood, which emphasizes a rapidly deteriorating space and an imminent return of Christ, well, the modern church perceives the Great Commission, or at least acts out the Great Commission, as if it's not urgent or entirely futile altogether. No one invests time and energy and resources into a failed project or a sinking ship. That's the way that evangelicalism has acted about discipleship for a hundred years, and it has destroyed the climate of the church. Now, take an opposite example, for instance, a man like William Carey. He's often hailed as the father of modern day missions. His life demonstrates actually the foolishness of the premillennial view. William Carey worked in India for four decades amid significant challenges without seeing any substantial results or fruit. And yet, it was his lifelong sacrificial commitment which laid the foundation for a significant Christian presence in India in the years to come. The long-term perspective and horizon with men like William Wilberforce and William Carey for missions and discipleship and government work is essential for the church and for the Christian. 
Like Jesus and the early apostles, this world that we're living in can also be turned upside down if we adopt a faithful, long-term perspective and we do the work that Jesus called us to do consistently and joyfully over lifetimes. Reason six, the paralysis of imminent expectation. Premillennialism, which holds that Christ's return is imminent and could happen at any moment, also causes tremendous problems in the individual believer and also in their churches. Now, while this urgency can encourage a state of ongoing readiness and a spiritual alertness, which Christ certainly speaks about, and that's a good thing, it also can lead to a spiritual paralysis. Instead of focusing on engaging with the present world, it creates a Christian more focused on waiting than doing. Remember, it was the one who buried his master's coin and waited for him to return who was beaten for his insolence and stupidity. And it was the ones who were found joyfully and diligently working, working all the way up until the point that the master returned who were rewarded for their labors. Reassessing our framework. While premillennialism does provide a framework for understanding the end times, it's not a very good one. In fact, it is a thoroughly wretched one that is miles away from the biblical text. You could, if you wanted, do a lot of things. You could drink a gallon of windshield washer fluid, but that's certainly not advisable. It was not going to quench your thirst either. It's just going to leave you empty inside and sick. Well, in the same way, holding to a premillennial view of the end times is certainly possible. You can do it, but it's not going to be helpful. It's going to undermine a biblical attitude of of hope and worship. It's going to cause unbiblical behavior that's going to lead to passivity, inactivity, and other blatant sins. And as mentioned before, whenever a person becomes captivated with missions or discipleship or seeing the Lord's kingdom grow for the glory of Christ and, and seeing it spread on earth as the waters covers the sea, whenever that happens, it's not attributed to premillennialism. It, it's attributed really to the gospel or other doctrines. It's not premillennialism that produces these things. It, it's actually when premillennials do these kinds of things, they're doing it in spite of their flawed eschatology and not because of it. In cases where premillennialists do robustly biblical things, they oppose their own worldview. That's why I cannot in good conscience present it as a viable biblical view. From my research and my assessment, it is clear where it belongs, and that's in the dumpster fire that it created. Instead of adopting such an odious, noxious viewpoint that so clearly stifles Christians' engagement in the world and slows mission and discipleship and produces people who are perpetually paralyzed in fear and doesn't promote Christian faithfulness to the commands of Christ and produces a sour disposition instead of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control and and it, and something that, it's, that produces... Uh, all of these different negative things, I, I can't recommend that. And it's evident and it's necessary for us to discard that and reevaluate our eschatological position before we're toxified up in it, which we'll be reevaluating that over the weeks ahead and we'll be giving the biblical view soon. So hang tight and keep watching. Conclusion. Brothers and sisters, as we conclude today's episode through the winding paths of eschatological defeatism, I need us to pause and reflect for a second. You and I have just put on the waders and we've, 
We've squished and squashed our way through the ugly swamp water of premillennial pessimism, and we've seen its potential to dampen our zeal for Christ and to hinder the mission that he's called us to. And while that kind of mud and muck holds so many Christians paralyzed and in a morbid stupor, I don't want us to end that way today. I want you and I to lift our gaze off of this and onto the glory of Jesus Christ, which is where our hope comes from. I want us to remember, dear Christian, that we are not a people of despair and defeat. We are a people of hope. Our Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the Father's right hand, is reigning now. He's not on a hammock soaking up the vacay rays in Tahiti. No, he's reigning supremely over his creation. He's going to restore his creation. And he's not going to wait until the church crashes and burns to begin the cleanup project. No, he's given you the mop and the broom and told you to get started to be active participants in the redemption story. And praise God for that. Because of this, let you and I discard the defeatism that we've been hearing about and embrace the hopeful message of the gospel with zeal and with passion, casting aside the fears of the chains of fear and the biting immobility of the defeat that pessimism has offered us, served us up on a cold plate, and let us be the kind of people, brothers and sisters, whom Jesus will find working when he returns. Let him find us working in our homes, working in our marriages, working with our children, building up our churches, engaging sinful culture, and let us never be the kind of people, the premillennial ostriches who hide our head in the sand, hoping to be rescued out of here. No, let us be young lions and lionesses that boldly and courageously declare the gospel of our triumphant Lord who triumphed over the grave, who is the first fruit of a new creation, who in his resurrection will bring all of us to resurrection. Let you and I be found working. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to examine the biblical case, like I said before, post-millennialism, a perspective that does not paint a picture of doom and gloom, but one of triumph and glory, a view that aligns with Christ's great commission. It's, it aligns with the great, uh, with the cultural mandate in Genesis 1. It's consistent with other biblical scriptures, all the biblical scriptures, I would argue, and a view that urges us to go forth boldly to make disciples of all the nations. We're going to explore how that perspective empowers you and I to be salt and light in a decaying world, in a world that desperately needs the pervasive truth of Christ and the illumination of his gospel. We're going to look at how this view encourages us to invest in long-term missions, remembering that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And we're going to see how we are called to be builders in the kingdom of Christ, Matthew 16, 18, cultivators in his garden, Genesis 2, 15, until he comes again, 1 Corinthians 15. But as we end today's episode, I want you and I to rise up from the latrine of defeatism. And I want us to wear the kingly robe and the mantle of godly hope. And I want you and I to be a part of the generation that sees the church cease from its retreating, a generation that sees the church invigorated to begin advancing again and seeing the gates of hell fall down on our feet again. I want you and I to be the generation that brings the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, heralding his kingdom that is ever growing, ever reaching, ever transforming to a world that is ever dying and ever in need of the only hope that can only be found in Christ. As you go into this week, brother and sister, carry with you that hope. 
ponder the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, 13, who said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let you never be consumed with defeat and let you abound in great hope. Join us next week as we evaluate one more deficient view of eschatology before we examine the biblical view, the better view, the view that I think scripture teaches. But until then, thank you for tuning into the podcast. May God richly bless you and keep you and keep your heart filled with hope. Until next time, God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the podcast. My name is Kendall, and I'm so thankful for you. Since we've been on YouTube, our channel has exploded, more than doubled in size, which is crazy. Every episode that we're putting out is getting over 200 views. And for some channels, that's small, but for us, that's actually pretty big. And I believe that the Lord wants to get this message out to even more people. So if you will, help us by sharing this content. Click the like button, click the little bell icon that subscribes so that you don't miss any new content. And if you'd like to help us financially, you can do so by going to www.theshepherds.church. Every dollar you give goes to the ministry that is reaching more people in New England and beyond with the hopeful gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you wanna give, give to that. That will pay dividends in Jesus's kingdom. Until next time. I do pray that God blesses you and we'll see you again on the podcast.